I have to think the majority of us have experienced aspects of healthcare delivery that seem, shall we say, less than ideal. Maybe you have wondered, how in the world did we get here? How can our sophisticated healthcare systems sometimes lead to such poor care? This week's article is truly unique because it is a narrative review, which tells the story of one such healthcare failure, the opioid crisis. And let me tell you, this is a story of good intentions, unintended consequences, profit motives, deregulation, siloing, over-reliance on small-scale studies, and short-term thinking. All of this ultimately created the perfect storm to create our current national opioid emergency. So even if you feel your work doesn't directly relate to the opioid crisis, I hope you consider spending some time with this article, maybe even printing it out and reading it after listening to this podcast, because I think it will help us understand the current state of healthcare, and perhaps you will find some ideas for how we can move forward. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where each week we discuss one influential OT-related journal article. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL, and this week we are discussing the journal article, Providing Chronic Pain Management in the Fifth Vital Sign Era, Historical and Treatment Perspectives on a Modern-Day Medical Dilemma. This article comes to us from the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 52nd on our list of the 100 most influential OT-related journal articles. So let's start by just trying to wrap our minds around the scope of this pain management problem. Right now, over 100 million Americans are living with chronic pain, and that number amounts to almost one in three people. And the crisis outlined by this article is that in the early 90s and 2000s, the number of opioids being subscribed to these patients skyrocketed, as have the numbers of opioid-related deaths. I will put some charts related to this in the OT Potential Club, but if you're not a member, you can just Google graphs related to the opioid emergency and see these charts. The article pointed out that in 1997, the number of prescriptions for the drug OxyContin, which is one of the most well-known prescription opioids, was at 670,000. By 2002, the number had mind-bogglingly jumped to around 6.2 million. Today, it is estimated that more than 130 people in the United States die every day after overdosing on opioids. Now, the story of how we went from relatively effective multidisciplinary pain management to the opioid crisis is what this article lays out. As I mentioned in the intro, how we arrived at these staggering numbers seems best described as the results of a perfect storm. You will have to read the article for the full narrative, but I will do my best to highlight key points from the story arc. The story begins with an optimistic time for pain management, and we even have a cameo from occupational therapy. Around the 1950s, John J. Bonica, who is considered the father of modern pain management, started to take a more holistic view of pain than was typical at the time. We now refer to this as the biopsychosocial model, which we have discussed previously on the podcast, and he designed a treatment program to match this more holistic understanding of pain, 
and developed the first multidisciplinary pain clinic. The success of his practice caused this model to spread and for multidisciplinary pain clinics to open across the country. Guidelines for these clinics stated that they should involve comprehensive assessment and treatment, which included a physical exam, medication management, biopsychosocial evaluation, cognitive behavioral treatment, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and the ability to refer to specialists not offered by the team. And the exciting news is that these clinics were deemed a success, with studies showing that they seemed to work. Um, As I was reading this article, I couldn't help but thinking about how awesome it would have been if we had continued to improve upon this model and how far we could be in pain management if we had continued to take this holistic direction. But after these pain clinics had opened across the country, things started to get messy. And this is where the article does a really good job of outlining the factors that led to the start decline of multidisciplinary pain management and to the rise of reliance on opioids. Uh, This list is kind of long, but I think it's worth reading through just to highlight the complexity of this change. So one of the first things was that CPT codes were introduced, which emphasized the fee-for-service model rather than the holistic care package that was offered by pain clinics. Second, managed care lived to gutting pain clinics of certain team members. For example, certain specialties like PT became non-reimbursable in the pain clinic model. And then with decreasing profit margins in their pain clinics, academic medical centers prioritized programs with higher profit margins, such as plastic surgery, orthopedics, etc. Then, physician training programs began to emphasize the more lucrative and procedure-based modalities, such as nerve blocks, ablations, and insertions of spinal cord simulators. Next, the World Health Organization recognized the treatment of pain to be a universal right, which is one of those good intention moments where there was a lot more emphasis starting to be put on pain management. The American Pain Society ran an influential campaign Uh, which was known as pain, the fifth vital sign, to raise awareness of the importance of pain management. After this, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, JCO, mandated the assessment and treatment of pain for all patients in their accredited settings. This new mandate, while probably well-intentioned, gave little time for hospitals and clinics to figure out the best options of pain management. And with pain clinics having been closed all around the country due to decreased reimbursements, opioids were a cost-effective option which provided excellent short-term relief. Now, there had been a long-standing fear of addiction to opioids, but two extremely small retrospective studies were circulated, which asserted that patients rarely developed opioid use disorder from prescription opioids. And finally, OxyContin was marketed aggressively to meet the need of pain management and even had FDA-approved labeling stating that addiction was, quote, very rare. And finally, the saddest part of all of this, at least in my opinion, is that there was no clear proof that opioids even do much good for patients. At the time of the writing of this article, there was no conclusive answer to whether opioid therapy even improves patients' outcomes. In fact, a systematic review found that there were no well-controlled long-term studies beyond 12 weeks showing that opioid treatment controls pain and or improves function. 
but we do know that opioid therapy comes with plenty of risks. And these risks include overdose death, substance abuse disorder, fractures, and sexual dysfunction. So all this leads us to the healthcare provider's dilemma. The article notes that this puts healthcare providers in a complex dilemma. On one hand, we know that it is important to treat chronic pain. After all, chronic pain can increase the odds of suicide, major depressive disorder, and substance abuse disorders. But we simply do not know from a research perspective what type of treatment is best for chronic pain. And we have to keep in mind that many patients do not have access to promising non-opioid options. There are other treatment approaches that the article outlines, which include non-opioid pharmacotherapies, physical therapy, unfortunately occupational therapy was not mentioned, um, psychological and behavioral therapies, complementary and alternative medicines, and invasive pain management interventions. However, the research on the long-term effectiveness of all these options is also limited, and the upfront costs are often higher and the benefits take longer to manifest. So what did this article recommend for future directions? The article stated that research is urgently needed to increase the evidence base of chronic pain management and hopefully usher in a new era of pain management. Here are the research questions that they suggested. One, what are the safety and efficacy rates of using opioid medications for periods greater than one year? Two, what are the system-specific needs and barriers of utilizing non-opioid therapies? And three, what is the role of pharmacotherapy in combination with chronic pain management? So what were my personal takeaways for OT practitioners from this narrative review? As always, these are my personal takeaways and they were not mentioned in the review. They're just meant to get your wheels turning about the article. I have three takeaways from this article. The first is that your skill set of holistic long-term thinking is needed. I was, of course, bummed that occupational therapy was not explicitly mentioned in the effective pain management strategies section. But the type of care that the authors described as having the most promising research behind it seems to be very much within our wheelhouse. We are well poised to approach pain from a biopsychosocial perspective. And more than other professionals, we are skilled at helping our patients establish routines and habits that can help them minimize the impact of pain in their lives. We are also skilled at setting up patients' environments to address pain management and encourage participation in meaningful functional activities. In my opinion, the best part about approaching pain from an OT lens is that our interventions are focused on long-term impact. And that is something that the healthcare system desperately needs when addressing pain. My second takeaway is that we need to spend time examining the systems in which we work. As occupational therapy professionals, many of us are rule followers. This skill has helped us succeed in the classroom and work in complex work settings. But the reality is that sometimes the rules in the current systems are not always geared towards providing the best care possible to our patients. Sometimes our systems need to be re-examined. Reading through the story laid out by this article, one wishes that healthcare practitioners had been able to more effectively sound the alarm at the right time. If only providers could have spoken up 
and felt supported in doing so when the new systems and regulations led to the closures of those early pain clinics, the ones that had shown so much promise. And my third takeaway is that as OTs, we need to strive to provide effective care and have sustainable business models for doing so. One would have hoped that those early multidisciplinary pain clinics, which seemed to offer results and were backed by promising research, would have succeeded. But as we saw in this case, that didn't happen. Not because the care wasn't working, but because the business model failed. This story feels like a cautionary tale that sometimes the best care does not become the most widespread. That's why I see this article as a reminder to remain cognizant of the business models in which we work. At the end of the day, I see this article as a call to action for us as OTs. We need to ensure that our care is effective and evidence-backed, but is also economically sustainable moving forward. And as holistic thinkers, I honestly think that OTs are well-equipped to meet this challenge moving forward. Okay, that is all that I have for you this week. As a reminder, the OT Potential Podcast is an extension of the OT Potential Club. If you are an OT Potential Club member, I am eager to hear your thoughts on this review. So be sure to jump into our forum discussion. And thank you so much to everyone who is listening. And I hope that this podcast helps you provide great care this week.